Once again, to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well, just like our new friends in Palestine have done. We actually have listeners in both Palestine and Israel, so I'm just putting it out there. Maybe that conflict can finally end if they both bond over the Raw Attitude podcast. It's just a thought. I'm spitballing here. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. In fact, our new friend Parmeroid from the United Kingdom did just that recently. He calls the show, quote, easy listening in the subject line, and here is his review. Recommended by the New Blood Rising podcast, Henry delivers his reviews of Attitude Era Raw episodes in an easily digestible format. He doesn't seem to be someone who is trying too hard to get over with the fans. He gets on with what he needs to get on with and doesn't mess around. You're damn right, Parmeroid. Much like Dan the Beast Severn, the Raw Attitude podcast refuses to pander to the fans, but we get over anyway. Thank you very much for that fantastic review, and while I'm at it, since Parmeroid mentioned that he was sent this way from the New Blood Rising podcast recommending us, I have to give a big thank you to those guys as well, because they've been supporters of this show almost from day one. If you haven't already subscribed to the New Blood Rising podcast, people, what are you waiting for? Get on it. Alright, now before we dive in this week, I do have one quick note up front. Last week I played a clip from Raw where Jacqueline was mocking Sable, and she said this to her. Look at that big fat cow! Oh! That pounds could sleep a family of four! <laughs> Not nice. Now, I had initially said that I thought Jackie was saying that Sable's tampon could sleep a family of four. However, Raw Attitude Podcast superfan Sal from Boston noted that he thought Jackie was actually saying that Sable's extra 10 pounds could sleep a family of four, which would make much more sense since she was making fun of Sable's weight at the time. I also assume Jackie meant to say that the extra 10 pounds could feed a family of four, not sleep a family of four, but I guess I shouldn't put words in her mouth. Either way, thanks to Sal, I think we've cleared that up. And so, with that being said... Let's get into the show. But of course, before we dive into Raw, there's also a pay-per-view to recap as well, and that pay-per-view is none other than Fully Loaded In Your House, coming to you live on Sunday, July 26, 1998, from the Selland Arena in Fresno, California, in front of a crowd of 9,855 fans. Some other noteworthy events which happen in this arena include the 1996 Royal Rumble and the episode of Raw from the night after Royal Rumble 1998 where Stone Cold Steve Austin and Mike Tyson had their infamous shoving match. And if you want to hear all about that show, feel free to go back and listen to episode number 5 of this fine podcast. Now, right up front, I'll just let you know that I'm not going to give Fully Loaded the same in-depth treatment which has been given to other pay-per-views like WrestleMania and King of the Ring because... Well, 
it's fully loaded. This whole show has basically been built around two things, the main event tag team title match and the bikini contest. Not exactly one for the record books. I'll do my best to keep it relatively brief. And speaking of the bikini contest, Fully Loaded begins with Jerry the King Lawler entering Sable's locker room and asking for a sneak preview of the bikini she will wear later on tonight. Sable ducks behind one of those curtain things that only shows a person's silhouette, Lawler peeks around the corner, and then he proceeds to freak out like the pervert that he is. Off to a great start. After the obligatory pyro and scanning of the crowd, Val Venus comes to the ring. He tells the California crowd he's going to show them his dong, but before he can do so, he gets interrupted by greatest character ever, Tennessee Lee, who informs Val that it is Jeff Jarrett who is actually, quote, the world's greatest lover. Southern Justice is with them as well, but only for a little while because the referee immediately ejects them from ringside. Strangely, as soon as Southern Justice gets kicked out, Kai and Tai and Yamaguchi-san then head down the aisle, and of course... Kai and Tai then get ejected as well. Not sure what they were thinking there. However, Yamaguchi-san does manage to sneak over to the commentary table. Got all that? Good, because this match is already overbooked, and it hasn't even started yet. Vince Russo at his finest. Anywho, Val managed to defeat Double J in just under 8 minutes when Tennessee Lee got up on the ring apron, but Venus threw Jarrett into him and then rolled him up to pick up the three count and remain undefeated. After the match, Val grabbed a mic and told Yamaguchi-san that his wife said he just doesn't measure up to the big Valboski. So remember, folks, the guy who steals another man's wife and bullies him is the good guy in this feud. Our next bout was a match between your new WWF European champion D'Lo Brown, accompanied by The Godfather, and D-Generation X member X-Pac, accompanied by China, although it should be noted that the European title was not on the line for this match. And for the second consecutive match, outside interference played into the finish. China got up on the ring apron to distract the referee, but when she did that, the Godfather hit X-Pac in the back of the head with a clothesline. Pac then knocked Godfather off the ring apron, but when he turned back around, D'Lo hit him with his sky-high spinebuster to pick up the three count and continue DX's lengthy losing streak. Also, the Sky High got a really nice pop from the crowd, so kudos to D'Lo because he's really starting to get over in a very short period of time. Next up was our third consecutive unannounced match, Farouk and Scorpio versus Bradshaw and Terry Funk. Now, some of you may remember that I already inducted Terry Funk into Wrestler Heaven back in episode 29, so you may wonder why he's appearing here. Just remember that Wrestler Heaven inductions are for someone's final match on Raw, since this is, after all, a podcast dedicated to Monday Night Raw. Just had to get that technicality out of the way. And speaking of which, before the match begins, Jim Ross interviews Terry Funk and Bradshaw, where Funk then informs us of his plans. And certainly now standing by, ladies and gentlemen, the team of, uh, of Bradshaw and Funk. And gentlemen, I'm just wondering, are you men ready here tonight to face an undefeated tag team? Hey, JR. What's on paper is not always important whenever it comes to professional wrestling. Because it's what's right here in your heart. And I'm going to make an announcement right now that this is going to be a, my last match in the WWF. For you going to let me in on this? For I'm a while. A for a while, for possibly six. Six months? Yeah, six months. Six months I'm going to take off because I've had a rough go up here against Mick Foley and the WWF competitors. And I'll tell you what, my batteries need recharging. Recharge your batteries. Yeah, I'm going to recharge my batteries. I'm Great. Gonna... 
I'm not sure why JBL was so pissed off at Funk for leaving, since this is literally only the third time they have teamed together. I guess he must have thought that he and a 54-year-old man had a real future together as tag team partners. Also, in case you're wondering, Funk and Mick Foley actually wrestled each other a week later at two separate house shows in Toronto and Quebec, so he barely made it six days as opposed to months. However, after that, Funk basically did stick to a very limited schedule as he only wrestled four more matches from the fall of 1998 to January of 2000. He then signed with WCW, where he began competing again much more regularly. And of course, he would briefly return to the WWF slash WWE in 2006 for two events, a show called WWE vs. ECW Head-to-Head, where he competed in a 20-man battle royal, and then four days later, he teamed with Tommy Dreamer and Beulah to face Mick Foley, Edge, and Lita at ECW One Night Stand 2006. And there you have it, that is the final saga of Terry Funk and the WWF. Why do I bring this up? Because it's much more interesting than the match itself, which actually draws quite a few boring chants. How's that for a send-off to Terry Funk? Thanks a lot, Attitude Era fans. Farouk and Scorpio ended up scoring the victory when Scorpio hit Funk with a 450 splash. After the match, an angry JBL hit Funk with a lariat clothesline and started putting the boots to him, so Scorpio ran down to make the save, since he and Terry Funk are pals. However, JBL booted him to the outside, and then, in a really cool spot, JBL also hit Scorpio with a lariat, which he sold by doing a full backflip on the arena floor. Very nicely done. And then, in an amusing moment, Farouk yelled at JBL for attacking his partner, so Bradshaw grabbed a chair and clobbered Farouk in the back with it. Pretty brutal, but something tells me that Bradshaw and Farouk will eventually patch up their differences. Call me crazy. Call me crazy. Our next match is a battle of two cruiserweights, Vader versus Mark Henry. These two actually had a tug of war on the episode of Shotgun Saturday Night, which aired the night before this pay-per-view, and Henry was victorious when Vader accidentally got himself tangled in the rope, so that should tell you all you need to know about how they're utilizing Vader at this point. And in this match, the world's strongest man picked up the win in about five minutes when he hit Vader with a power slam, then followed it up with a big splash for the three count. This was probably about as good as you would expect it to be. Up next, Paul Bearer, Kane, and Mankind headed to the ring for some talkie time. The commentators previously informed us that The Undertaker has not yet shown up to the building, so Bearer calls him a coward and says he's ducking Kane because he wants to be in one piece once SummerSlam rolls around. However, they then get interrupted by the New Age Outlaws. Road Dog challenges them to a match tomorrow night on Raw, which seems like a dumb idea because there's a fair chance that Kane and Mankind won't have the belts by then. The two teams then proceed to fight each other until WWF officials get between them, and if ever there was a sign that Kane is starting to look much more mortal, take a look at this segment where Billy Friggin' Gunn is getting the better of him during a brawl. Yikes. Our next match is LOD 2000 versus the Disciples of Apocalypse, accompanied by Paul Ellering, who is wearing a jacket which proclaims himself to be Mr. Dotcom. And, in case you're curious, the website URL, Mr.com, is currently available in case you want to buy it and turn it into a DOA fan page. Just a thought. Before the match, we flash back to Raw last week, where Hawk pulled a no-show at the beginning of Animal's match against Skull. Jim Ross then tells us, quote, There's a lot of rumors regarding Hawk's behavior. Keep that in mind for later in the podcast. As for Fully Loaded, the DOA ended up scoring the victory thanks to, stop me if you've heard this one before, outside interference. 
Yes, that's right. Three of the first five matches on this card have featured someone jumping up on the ring apron in an attempt to cause a distraction. In this case, it was Paul Ellering getting the attention of Animal, which allowed Skull to pull the twin magic routine with 8-Ball. He then hit Animal with a simple DDT, and somehow that was enough to get the win for the DOA. Shortly after the match ended, Vince McMahon, Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and Commissioner Slaughter walked to the ring, and we got the amusing visual of them passing by a WWF referee who was riding one of the DOA's motorcycles to the backstage area. Talk about killing the biker mystique. Vince grabs a mic and says that if The Undertaker does not show up tonight, it will not be Vince's fault, but rather it will be the fault of Stone Cold Steve Austin, because Austin is the one who hit Taker with a chair last Monday on Raw. However, if The Undertaker does indeed pull a no-show here tonight, Vince has a suitable replacement to act as Austin's tag team partner, and, well, I'll just let Vince tell it. In your program, you would note this insert at the bottom of it in the fine print, it states... When scheduled talent is unable to appear due to circumstances beyond the control of the promoter, that's me, Vince McMahon, the promoter, the promoter reserves the right to make a suitable substitution. So therefore, in the unlikely event that The Undertaker pulls a no-show, then I will in fact order a suitable substitution. Who would it be? As a matter of fact, I should introduce you to him now. Joining Stone Cold Steve Austin as his tag team partner to face Kane and Mankind in the event The Undertaker no-shows will be the Brooklyn Brawler! Can you imagine buying a ticket that night and thinking you were going to see The Undertaker only to get the Brooklyn friggin' brawler instead? That would be almost as bad as... Well, as bad as No Way Out 1998 when Shawn Michaels was replaced by Savio Vega. So will it be Taker or Brawler in the main event? Stay tuned to find out. We then cut to the Hart Family Dungeon in Calgary, Alberta, Canada for our next encounter, a submission match between a Zubaz-wearing Owen Hart and reigning King of the Ring Ken Shamrock with special guest referee Dan the Beast Severn. I have to note that Shamrock does his usual punching himself in the head routine before he walks down the stairs to the basement, which is both creepy and hilarious at the same time. Interestingly, the Hart Dungeon does not contain an actual wrestling ring, so Owen and Shamrock just have to fight each other on the floor and throw each other into the wooden walls. It's quite the bizarre match to watch. At one point, Shamrock went for a kick to Owen's head, but Owen ducked and Shamrock accidentally kicked Severn by mistake. With the beast down on the ground, Owen then grabbed a barbell and smacked Shamrock in the back of the head with it, knocking him unconscious. Owen then picked up Shamrock's hand, and once Severn recovered... Owen himself tapped Shamrock's hand on the mat to signal a tap-out, which Severn was somehow dumb enough to fall for, and he declared Owen the winner. Personally, if I was Shamrock, as soon as I regained consciousness, I would head upstairs and immediately start beating the shit out of Stu Hart to get my revenge. It's only fair. 
We then immediately segue back to the arena for our next bout, a two out of three falls match for the WWF Intercontinental title, champion The Rock versus challenger Triple H, accompanied by China. The first fall of the match actually did not come until about 20 minutes in, and it was slightly botched. D'Lo Brown missed his cue to come out and interfere, so The Rock was forced to distract the referee for way too long, and at one point he just yelled, damn it, out of frustration. Eventually, D'Lo did make his way to the ring, and he climbed to the top rope, but Triple H crotched him and then smacked him in the face with the European title. However, when Hunter turned back around, Rocky hit him with a rock bottom, and that was enough to put the rock up one to nothing. About five minutes later, surprise, surprise, we had more outside interference as China jumped up on the ring apron to distract the referee. Triple H brought a chair into the ring, but the rock took it from him. Rock went to swing it at Hunter, but he ducked, causing Rock to accidentally hit the ref and knock him to the ground. China then seized the opportunity by sneaking into the ring, hitting Rock with a low blow, and then DDTing him onto the chair. She revived the referee, he made the count, and we are now tied 1-1 to at roughly 27 minutes into the match. However, it is at this point that we're told something interesting. This is a 2 out of 3 falls match with a 30-minute time limit. Never heard that one before. Sure enough, Triple H ended up hitting the rock with a pedigree, but the referee didn't count the pinfall because time had expired. The match was ruled a draw, so the rock is still your WWF Intercontinental Champion. I'm not exactly a wrestling historian, but I feel like this is probably the only two out of three falls match in history, which somehow ends in a one-to-one tie. Leave it to Vince Russo to come up with a new way to screw things up. And now it is time for the bikini contest between Sable and Jacqueline, who is accompanied by Mark Merrow. One aspect of this I had forgotten was that Dustin Runnels actually came out before the contest began and prayed for everyone involved, so that was a nice touch. Your host for this segment is, of course, Jerry the King Lawler, because he probably lobbied Vince McMahon for the job every day since they announced this would take place. Jacqueline initially covers herself in one of Mark Marrow's boxing robes, while Sable is wearing a gigantic t-shirt to cover herself. Jackie removes her robe first to reveal a red one-piece thong bikini, which is, uh, barely covering anything. For a frame of reference, just think of that bikini that Borat wears, and you'll get a good mental picture. In fact, Jackie actually steals a bit of Sable's thunder by briefly flashing her breasts for the crowd, but, once again... Don't get too excited, because the WWE Network censors it. And then, it's Sable's turn. She removes her ridiculously enormous t-shirt to reveal a black thong, but a very discreet top which covers her chest entirely. Lawler asks her why she's wearing something so modest, to which Sable responds that she was advised by Vince McMahon to wear something a little more conservative. However, Sable tells us that this is a live pay-per-view, and there's nothing Mr. McMahon can do about that, and then we get one of the more famous moments from the Attitude Era as Sable removes her shirt to reveal that the only thing she is wearing on her chest is two hands painted over her breasts. The crowd, of course, goes apeshit for this, but Marrow and Jacqueline protest because they say it is technically not an actual bikini, so clearly they read the bikini contest rulebook in advance. Vince McMahon then comes to the ring and puts his suit coat over Sable, and he forces her to head backstage. Fun fact, if you're watching this on the WWE Network and you want to see more of both women in their bikinis, or technically not bikinis, I guess, we get bonus footage showing Jacqueline and Mark Marrow barging into Sable's locker room until WWF officials get between them to break it up. Good times. 
Quick thoughts on this. Obviously, it's an iconic moment for the time. This pay-per-view was pretty much built around Sable appealing to the rabid, horny male fan base, so I suppose the segment should be considered a victory there because they went as far as they could without actually showing Sable's breasts to the world, and the crowd ate it up anyway. Not only that, but I think you could probably consider this to be the most memorable moment of Sable's WWF career, which I'm not sure would make Mrs. Lesnar too happy, but sadly that is probably the case. And if you ever needed an indication that the WWF is ramping things up in the Attitude Era, there you have it. And now it's time for our main event WWF Tag Team title match. Champions Kane and Mankind versus challengers Stone Cold Steve Austin and either The Undertaker or The Brooklyn Brawler. As it turns out, yes, of course, The Undertaker shows up. Not only that, but he actually has a brand new theme song, but don't get too attached to it because they give up on it very quickly. In fact, just for you all, I'm going to play some of it for you right here. If you're not interested, feel free to skip ahead about a minute, but if you listen to it, you'll likely notice that this particular theme is quite similar to a better one that Taker ends up using toward the end of 1998. Take a listen. but not quite where it needs to be just yet. Anyway, before the match begins, Taker goes to the aisle to have a word with Stone Cold, presumably about the fact that Austin clocked him with a chair last week, but before they can fight each other, Kane jumps Austin from behind, and Mankind jumps The Undertaker. Now remember, the big storyline going into this pay-per-view was, are The Undertaker and Kane in cahoots? Well, we got our answer pretty early on in the match, and that answer was... No, because they just started fighting each other when they were both tagged into the ring. It was actually pretty weak, in my humble opinion. After all those weeks of build-up, Taker ended up entering the ring and hitting Kane with a side Russian leg sweep. Talk about anticlimactic. Toward the end of the match, Austin reached for a tag to The Undertaker, and Taker initially seemed reluctant to extend his hand because, after all, Austin did clobber him with a chair last week. But then, Taker did indeed reach out for the tag. He chokeslammed his own brother, then followed it up with a tombstone, and then he pinned Kane for the one, the two, and the three. Ladies and gentlemen, your winners and the new WWF Tag Team Champions, The Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin. Don't tell that to Taker, though, because he ends up walking away holding both belts as Austin yells at him. And so, with SummerSlam one month away, the two men who are scheduled to face each other in the main event are now the co-holders of the tag team titles. How can they possibly coexist? I guess we'll find out soon enough. As for Fully Loaded as a whole, I would say it gets a firm thumbs in the middle. The main event is good and we surprisingly got 30 minutes of The Rock and Triple H, but the undercard is a combination of mediocre and terrible matches. 
If you're going to watch anything, maybe just stick to that final hour and a half. Regarding the buy rate, it obviously wasn't going to come close to the insane 600,000 pay-per-view buys that WCW's Bash at the Beach got two weeks prior, but Fully Loaded did draw a very respectable 329,000 buys, which, up to this point, was the highest number the WWF ever drew for an in-your-house pay-per-view. Surprisingly, that figure is actually 19,000 more buys than they got for King of the Ring one month prior, and it's a whopping 120,000 buy increase from last July's WWF pay-per-view Canadian Stampede. But for the record, though, Canadian Stampede is fucking awesome, and you should definitely watch that instead of this. All in all, some very positive signs for the WWF, even though Fully Loaded was not that great. And so, with that being said, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, July 27th, 1998, and we are live from Arrowhead Pond in Anaheim, California, in front of roughly 18,000 fans, which is actually almost double the attendance they had for Fully Loaded. Some other noteworthy events which have occurred in this building include the 1999 Royal Rumble, which is only about five months away in our timeline, and not one, but two WrestleManias take place at the Arrowhead Pond, WrestleMania 12, where Shawn Michaels defeated Bret Hart in the Iron Man match, and WrestleMania 2000, which we will eventually cover on this podcast. We begin with a recap of last night's pay-per-view, but then we kick into the show itself. Cue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs this week include The Underwear Taker, China Show Me Your Pecs, Quiet I'm Reading, The Rock's Cooking Butt Soup, I Have a Boner, Fuck WCW, good job getting that one by security, I Want to Slap Sable's Tits Too, that's in reference to the handprint bikini, I assume, and perhaps most offensively, two signs which are quite similar, Bischoff Has AIDS and Triple HIV. You know, considering the fact that Anaheim is the home of Disneyland, you'd think those signs would be more family-friendly. We officially begin with The Undertaker walking to the ring, accompanied by his new not-that-great theme song, and he is still holding both of the tag team titles for himself. Taker says that he and Stone Cold Steve Austin may be champions, but they will never be partners unless Austin comes to the ring right now and apologizes to him for smacking him with a chair last week. However, instead of Austin, we get Vince McMahon, Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and Commissioner Slaughter. Interestingly, even though Taker tombstoned Kane last night, Vince still believes that he and Kane are in cahoots. Vince says that it took The Undertaker three tombstones to beat Kane at WrestleMania, but only one at Fully Loaded, which seems a bit suspicious. Oh, Vince, just fast forward 19 years, and you'll realize that hitting three finishers at WrestleMania is the minimum it will take to put someone down for a three count. Vince says the Taker may be demanding an apology from Austin, but it is actually Vince who is due for an apology from The Undertaker because Taker chokeslammed him last week on Raw. Vince says that he's going to get his apology, but first it is his duty to let Taker know that he and Austin will be defending their WWF Tag Team titles tonight against the New Age Outlaws. So then, what was the point of the Outlaws challenging Kane and Mankind at Fully Loaded then? Yeesh. Vince says he refuses to leave the ring until The Undertaker apologizes to him, but then Stone Cold Steve Austin's music hits and the WWF champion heads to the ring. Interestingly, instead of the standard WWF title, Austin is holding the belt, which comes to be known as the Smoking Skull Belt, his personalized world title, which features a skull and two rattlesnakes on it. 
This is the very first appearance of that belt, and, if you believe the gossip, Vince was actually legitimately pissed about Austin using it. Stone Cold was given the idea to use his own world title by the Legion of Doom, and he allegedly had the belt created with his own money without asking Vince first, so not only are we seeing it for the first time in this segment, but Vince McMahon is as well. Fun stuff. And speaking of Vince, he and the Stooges leave the ring and head up the ramp as soon as Austin enters. Stone Cold says he has no problem defending the tag titles tonight, and then he responds to The Undertaker's request for an apology by flipping him off and mouthing the words, Fuck you. Austin then heads backstage as Taker looks at him menacingly, so we are officially off and running here on Monday Night Raw. We then segue into our first match of the evening, WWF European Champion D'Lo Brown versus Vader in another non-title match. Before the match begins, D'Lo actually gets to cut what I believe is his very first solo promo. He tells us he's been on the phone with Euro Disney, and they're going to create two new rides on his behalf, the Sky High and the Lowdown. Gotta love D'Lo fully embracing his new European heritage. We get an amusing spot early on in the match where Vader splashed D'Lo in the corner, but he shook it off and said, I'm alright, because his chest protector absorbed most of the impact. I think D'Lo may officially be the MVP of Raw at this point. Jim Ross then informs us that Ken Shamrock will not be on the show tonight because he suffered a concussion last night when Owen Hart hit him with a barbell. Since this was 1998, though, I'm surprised they didn't force him to wrestle anyway, because the common mantra at this time seemed to be, come on, it's only your brain bouncing against your skull, how bad could that possibly be? Continuing on in the match, D'Lo actually got some impressive offense in on Vader, including slamming him twice and hitting him with a very nice-looking moonsault. However, Vader managed to swing the momentum by ducking a charging D'Lo, which sent the European champion to the floor. Vader then followed him outside, ripped off his chest protector, and hit him with a big splash. Vader was then able to re-enter the ring, but D'Lo was not. Your winner by countout, the man they call Vader. That's right, folks, do not adjust your earpieces. Vader actually got a victory. We then cut to a pre-taped segment called Draws' World, where we learn several things about Darren Drozdov. He vomits a lot, he has some shitty-looking tattoos, he loves to shoot guns in his backyard, and he has two pet snakes. I think the goal of this segment was to make Draws come across as really quirky and weird, but he actually seems quite a bit more normal by 2017 standards. And up next, ladies and gentlemen, I have a question for you. Are you ready to witness the death of a career? I hope so, because your next contest is a Brawl for All matchup, Bart Gunn, versus Dr. Death Steve Williams. If you recall in the last episode of this podcast, I read a chapter from Bob Hawley's book where he said that Dr. Death was strongly resented in the locker room because his buddy Jim Ross was telling everyone who would listen that he was going to beat everybody's ass in the brawl for all. We shall see how that plays out. In case you need a reminder of how each man got to this point, Bart Gunn defeated his tag team partner Bob Hawley by judge's decision, while Dr. Death defeated the one-eyed Quebecer Pierre by TKO. FYI, they still haven't shown us an actual bracket for the Brawl for All, presumably because they're just pulling this whole thing out of their asses. And so, let's get into the fight. Right off the bat, Dr. Death lands a clean takedown on Bart, so that will put him up 5 to nothing. The remainder of the round basically consisted of both guys throwing haymakers at each other with varying levels of success. These WWF judges are erratic, but Dr. Death is probably ahead after round one. The majority of round two consisted of both guys getting tangled with each other, forcing the referee to break them up on several occasions. 
However, Bart did manage to land a takedown on Dr. Death toward the end of the round, which popped the crowd a little bit because the force of the takedown almost knocked Dr. Death out of the ring entirely. We then saw a graphic on the screen for the WWF's unofficial scoring for the round, which somehow had Dr. Death ahead 15-5. to I can only assume that the scorer tonight must be Jim Ross. And so, let's get to round three. The beginning of the round was actually pretty uneventful, with the crowd actually chanting boring due to their lack of enthusiasm for takedown attempts. However, with 30 seconds left in the round, Bart Gunn did manage a successful takedown, and that was when everything went downhill for Dr. Death. When Dr. Death stood up after recovering from the takedown, it became clear that he had injured his left leg. Instead of quitting, however, he decided to stay in the fight. How did that go? Let's find out. 30 seconds left. When you go for that, I think Dr. Destiny is injured. When you go for that single leg takedown like that, oh, big bomb. They're throwing him. He's rocked. Dr. Death is shaking. Oh, he's going to go. The big left hand, the big left hand by Bart Gunn caught the doctor. He's out. There's our first knockout. Here is your winner, Bo Decius. Yes, that's right. Bart Gunn landed a hard left hand to the face of Dr. Death, and that was enough to knock him to the canvas for the victory. I suppose you have to give credit to Dr. Death for continuing despite his injury, but man oh man, did this make him look pretty pathetic at the time. Keep in mind, Bart Gunn is a glorified jobber right now, and Dr. Death was allegedly being groomed as a potential opponent for Stone Cold Steve Austin. Suffice to say, those plans are now out the window. Don't worry, though, Jim Ross does manage to make a few more excuses for him before we wrap up this segment. Hey, these, are, these guys are out of their element here. It's not wrestling, it's not fighting, and when you put, a, you put gloves on a wrestler... It uh, really takes him into a unique environment here, and Dr. Death really got his uh, bell rung there. Uh, he's up. He's been, ta- he's been tagged before. You don't become a four-time All-American and, uh, and not get your bell rung. You don't win every fight that you're in, but I will assure you that he will live to fight another day. Spoiler alert, no he won't. And the main reason for that is because the injury he suffered on that takedown was actually a torn hamstring, which will cause him to be out of action for the remainder of the year. He does briefly resurface in the WWF in 1999, but for all intents and purposes, this Brawl for All match pretty much kills his WWF career. While real, non-death doctors tend to Steve Williams, Bart Gunn celebrates, but we then hear Owen Hart's music. He has a microphone and he's walking to the ring, but we first get a quick commercial break. When we return, we see footage from during the break where trainers helped carry Dr. Death back to the locker room, which actually makes him seem even more pathetic. R.I.P. the WWF career of Dr. Death Steve Williams. It lasted a good two weeks. Anyway, Owen Hart has a microphone, and he says that he proved last night that he's the baddest man in the WWF, so he's issuing an open challenge to anyone in the back to come to the ring and face him. Strangely, Owen's own music plays... But then we see that the man accepting the challenge is Jason Sensation, who is once again dressed up like Owen. He's here to share his own impression with the world once again, so let's take a listen. Owen doesn't like this. Well, enough is enough, and it's time for a change! Woo! 
touch that young man. Hey, you, tough guy. You think you could come out here and slap me around? Huh? Well, I think it's time for you and me to stand nose to nose. They almost are. That'll be an adventure. Meaning we're going to be miles apart. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> the fact is, Owen, you're nothing but a little nugget. And it's time. And it's time that people start flushing you down the toilet. Damn it. Woo! Nugget. Nugget. Uh -oh. Nugget. Owen starts walking up the ramp to go after Jason, but before he can get to him, Dan the Beast Severn comes out from backstage to get in Owen's face. Apparently, Severn is here to accept Owen's open challenge, even though he's wearing a full business suit. Owen and Severn fight for only about a minute until the concussed Ken Shamrock emerges from the crowd, runs into the ring, and clotheslines Owen as payback for Owen hitting him with a barbell last night. Shamrock then puts Owen into a dragon sleeper as Severn tries to get him to stop. However, since Shamrock refuses to relinquish the hold, Severn then puts Shamrock into a dragon sleeper and he refuses to let go. Eventually, Steve Blackman and various WWF officials come to the ring to get Severn to release the hold, but wow, they're really playing up a potential match between these two former UFC competitors. Obviously, it would be pretty goddamn awesome if we got Shamrock versus Severn but I'm pretty sure it doesn't happen, so don't get your hopes up too much. We then get a quick ad telling us that Sunday Night Heat debuts this Sunday at 7 o'clock p.m. on the USA Network. And on a related note, the very next episode of this podcast will in fact be a bonus episode covering the debut of Sunday Night Heat, so be on the lookout for that sometime in the very near future. From there, we go backstage where Michael Cole attempts to interview an irate Ken Shamrock. He asks Shamrock what happened out there, fantastic journalism by Cole, to which Shamrock angrily yells at him and asks him if he's blind. A startled Cole then backs up into the chain-link fence setup, falls down, and knocks the set over. So what I'm saying is, this was a five-star segment. Our next match was Scorpio and Farouk versus the Disciples of Apocalypse, accompanied by Paul Ellering. In what is surely a treat for wrestling fans everywhere, Bradshaw joins Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler at the commentary table, meaning that this is the official commentary debut of JBL. In fact, let's take a listen to how that went for JR and the King. King, you got any questions for Bradshaw? Well, you know what? Here's all I want to say. You hear JR out here talking about Terry Funk being 53 years old. You know, I just think it's like you said. Time to put the old guy out the pasture. You think I'm here to listen to you, huh? This ain't a comedy central. This is a wrestling match, son. You call the match. You understand me? You call the match. This is a fight. They don't want to hear your comedy central. Yes, Bradshaw's new gimmick appears to be that he hates everyone, particularly Comedy Central. And sure enough, that ends up bearing itself out when Skull and Scorpio fight outside the ring in front of the commentary table, and JBL then ends up attacking them both. The bell rings, so I assume this one is a no contest, and we then get a massive brawl between JBL, Scorpio, Farouk, and the DOA. Commissioner Slaughter even comes to the ring and scolds Bradshaw, so JBL shoves Slaughter, and Slaughter then shoves him right back. 
Remember that JBL is still in the Brawl for All as well, so I'm assuming they're trying to get him over as a legitimate badass. Clearly, no one is going to be able to knock him out, unless maybe Joey Styles ends up entering the tournament. After a commercial break, it is now time for our next matchup, and it is a triple threat match for the WWF Intercontinental title. Champion The Rock versus Triple H versus X-Pac. Certainly, this seems a little bit unfair to The Rock since he'll be in the ring with two members of D-Generation X, but I guess we'll see how that plays out. There are several signs in the crowd wishing Triple H a happy birthday, and those fans must have really done their homework because, sure enough, this episode of Raw does indeed take place on Hunter's 29th birthday. Will he be celebrating with the Intercontinental title? Let's get into it. As you might expect, the match begins with Hunter and X-Pac taking turns beating the crap out of Rock. Both members of DX worked in solidarity with each other until Triple H hit Rock with the pedigree and covered him, but X-Pac dragged Hunter off before the three count. Pac then tried to pin the Rock himself, but Hunter pulled him off as well. The two DX members then stood nose to nose and started shoving each other, which allowed Rock to sneak up on Triple H and knock him out of the ring. The Rock then took control of the match and mostly dominated X-Pac, including hitting him with the people's elbow and a rock bottom, but Triple H re-emerged to break up the pinfall before Rock could get the win. Eventually, X-Pac hit Rock with an X-Factor and covered him, but Triple H broke up the pinfall again, which caused Pac to audibly yell, What the fuck's your fucking problem? Triple H turned away from X-Pac, so Pac grabbed him by the shoulder, but when Hunter turned back around, he punched X-Pac in the face. Pac then returned the favor, and both members of DX then started slugging it out with each other. At this point, The Rock left the ring, grabbed his Intercontinental title, and started walking up the ramp. Strangely, the referee began counting when Rock left, and sure enough, he did indeed count The Rock out. So in the past two nights, we've seen a two out of three falls match end in a tie, and a triple threat match end in a countout. Vince Russo, you creative genius. Also, why the hell did the referee make the count for The Rock, but not for Triple H, who was out of the ring for well over a minute? I guess maybe only the champion can be counted out in this scenario? Not only that, but what exactly is the official ruling here? The Rock gets counted out, so does that make Triple H and X-Pac the co-winners of the match? Suddenly I can feel myself beginning to have an aneurysm. Our next match is Los Bariquas member Jesus Castillo versus Bracus. Yes, that's right, you forgot about Bracus, but I'm here to remind you. The match only lasts for about 50 seconds, but don't worry, that was still plenty of time for the Anaheim crowd to start a steroids chant in Bracus's direction. The big German ended up picking up the victory with a sloppy-looking spinebuster, but clearly, Bracus is on his way to becoming a superstar. And on a related note, this is Bracus's final match on Monday Night Raw. Yes, that's right, he lost a brawl for all fight to Savio Vega and defeated Jesus Castillo, and that is all we will ever see of Bracus on Raw. Normally, this is the spot where I would cue up the Wrestler Heaven theme, but honestly, Bracus doesn't even deserve it. Auf Wiedersehen, you big, talentless goof. We then go backstage where we see two people behind a shower curtain. One of them exits and grabs a towel, and we see that it is Mrs. Yamaguchi-san. Presumably, of course, the other person in the shower with her was Val Venus. And speak of the devil, when we come back from commercial, Val Venus is making his way to the ring, where his opponent will be too sexy Brian Christopher. Before the match can begin, however, Kai and Tai and Yamaguchi-san appear at the top of the ramp. 
Kai and Tai are holding sausages while Yamaguchi-san is holding a sword, which distracts Val enough for Brian Christopher to jump him from behind. However, that momentum doesn't last for too long, as Val ends up defeating Christopher pretty easily by surprisingly pinning him with the fisherman's suplex instead of his usual money shot. After the match, Christopher and Scott Taylor jumped Val from behind and started beating on him, so WWF light heavyweight champion Taka Michinoku ran out to the ring to make the save. With Val and Taka standing tall, Yamaguchi-san grabbed a microphone, and man oh man, does he ever proceed to give us one of the greatest soundbites in wrestling history. Allow me to set the stage for you. Yamaguchi-san and Kai and Tai are standing at the top of the ramp, while Val and Taka are in the ring. Yamaguchi-san has a sword, and there is a large salami sitting on a table. From there, you can probably guess what happens, so I'll just let Yamaguchi-san spell it out for us. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why the Attitude Era is the greatest time in wrestling history. Is there another time period when a man would threaten a wrestler with severing his genitals? I think not. Also, because I've watched this clip roughly a thousand times, I've picked up on a few things that I didn't notice the first time around. For example, after Lawler says, what is he talking about? You can clearly hear one fan in the audience who realizes what Yamaguchi-san is about to do, and he obviously feels Val Venus's pain because you can hear him yell out, no! You may need to have your headphones on to hear it, but it's worth a listen. What is he talking about? So there you have it. Next week, it will be Kai and Tai versus Val Venus and Taka Michinoku with the big Valboski potentially being on the line. It's certainly a memorable night, so be sure to tune in next time because it's uh, interesting, to say the least. And speaking of interesting train wrecks, when we come back from commercial, LOD2000 are standing by backstage with Michael Cole. Animal is the only one who speaks during the promo, and as he is doing so, Hawk is acting, shall we say, a bit strange. It looks like he has some of his face paint mistakenly smeared on his chest, he has trouble keeping his eyes open, and he accidentally drops his motorcycle helmet to the ground while Animal is speaking. If you thought pee-pee chopping was offensive, get ready for a new low. We then segue back to the arena where we see the two men that LOD2000 will be facing, Mark Henry and The Godfather. And wait a minute, what's this? Tonight, The Godfather is accompanied to the ring by three lovely ladies. In fact, as he's walking down the aisle, we can hear him say, What a good day for a pimp. Pimps up, baby. Hose down. Yes, that's right, folks. This episode of Raw marks the official debut of The Godfather we all come to know and love. Truly, this is a historic night. But then, there was LOD's entrance. Hawk was seemingly staggering as he was walking, and Animal admonished him because he forgot to wear his trademark shoulder pads. To make things even worse, Hawk tripped over the ring rope, causing his helmet to fall off. Even Jim Ross points out for us that, quote, 
Hawk doesn't look to be himself here. Animal starts the match in the ring, with Hawk looking dazed on the ring apron. At one point, Animal reached out for a tag, but Hawk was seemingly not paying attention, and Jim Ross further speculated that Hawk may have actually fallen asleep. JR then attempts to cover up for him by saying that Hawk received some bad news earlier today, which may be why he's in the state that he's in. Yeesh. Things then get even more cringeworthy as Animal put the Godfather up on his shoulders to set up the Doomsday device, but when Hawk climbed the top rope, well, you can probably imagine what happened from there. In fact, let's take it to JR and Lawler for the end of the match. Oh, here we go. Oh, no, wait a minute. Hawk's going up. Oh, he fell off the rope. My God. We have a problem. He's in the wrong corner. I don't... Well, wait a minute here. The Godfather has Animal up, and Death Valley Driver... The Death Valley Driver got three! And the Godfather and Mark Henry have just defeated the Legion of Doom. The Godfather and the world's strongest man, Mark Henry! Well, two men just beat Animal of the Legion of Doom, and Hawk was never in the match in more ways than one, unfortunately. Remember earlier how I said that we were witnessing the end of Dr. Death's career? Well, that goes double for the Legion of Doom. Now, it would be tasteless enough to do an angle where a wrestler is portrayed as being intoxicated, but the worst part here is that during this time, Hawk was actually battling substance abuse issues in real life. Not to mention the other minor detail that two days after this episode airs, LOD 2000's former manager, Sonny, gets released from the WWF because she refuses to go to rehab to treat her own substance abuse issues. And yet, somehow, several people thought that having Hawk go out and pretend to be shit-faced in front of a live crowd was a good idea. Don't worry, though, Vince Russo is not a quitter, so we still have about three more months of this angle left. Oi. So let's segue into something a little lighter. When we return from commercial break, Jerry the King Lawler is now in the ring, and he brings out Mark Marrow, Jacqueline, and Sable, who is once again wearing an oversized t-shirt. We're told that she's going to share a special raw bikini with us tonight, so fasten your seatbelts. Much like the classic Hulk Hogan-Andre the Giant feud from 1987, there is a large trophy in the ring to be presented to the bikini contest winner, and a tiny trophy to be presented to the loser. Lawler is about to present the winner's trophy to Sable, but before he can do so, a stagehand gives the king a piece of paper which states that Mr. McMahon is disqualifying Sable because body paint does not technically count as a bikini. Jacqueline and Marrow then proceed to take the larger trophy and celebrate like they just won the Super Bowl as Sable looks on unamused. Once they leave the ring, Lawler asks Sable how she feels about losing a bikini contest by disqualification, yet another screwy Russo finish, by the way. She says she isn't surprised, and she just wishes Mr. McMahon was man enough to tell her she lost to her face instead of sending a stagehand. As you might expect, this does indeed bring out Vince McMahon, who appears to take great offense to having his masculinity questioned. He begins to call Sable ungrateful, and then, in a moment which massively pops the crowd, a fan throws some sort of object into the ring, which hits Vince right in the ass. Amusingly, however, Vince just shrugs it off by saying, quote, that's all right, because the next time you do that, you'll hit her. 
sadly, that will not be the last object that they throw into the ring on this night. Stay tuned for that. Getting back to the promo, well, I'm just going to go ahead and play the rest of what Vince says for you because it's quality, evil Mr. McMahon. Notwithstanding me being the knight in shining armor coming to your rescue, Sable, I admit, from a PR standpoint, I brought you back because of your overwhelming popularity with WWF fans. I admit that. And let's face it, I do everything I can for WWF fans. However, people like you, especially in this town, are a dime a dozen. Well, I could snap my fingers and have you replaced by any number of bimbos and airheads. You owe me, Sable. And when people like you owe me, I generally collect. However, your knight in shining armor will allow you to continue to be gainfully employed here in the World Wrestling Federation, at least for a little while longer. Just as long as you don't become an ungrateful bitch. Vince then goes to leave the ring, but while his back is turned, Sable flips him the double bird. She then proceeds to remove her gigantic t-shirt to reveal a black and white thong bikini underneath, much to the delight of the crowd. And then, the segment just ends, so I guess we can only assume that her actions must have pissed Vince off, even though this portion of the show probably crushed Nitro in the ratings. I mean, realistically, he should probably be thanking her. And now it's time for your main event. New WWF Tag Team Champions, Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker, defending their titles against the New Age Outlaws. As soon as the match starts, the rowdy assholes in the Anaheim crowd toss a beach ball into the ring, which Stone Cold awesomely picks up and punts right back into the crowd. Not exactly in character for Austin, but it was amusing. Looking back on this now, I kind of wish it had been The Undertaker who was in the ring at the time, just because it would have been fun to see how he would have reacted to that. I'd like to think that Dead Man Taker would have punted the beach ball as well, but maybe that's just wishful thinking. Later on in the match, another beach ball will end up getting tossed into the ring, but the camera cuts away before we can see what happens to it. Either way, I think we can officially say that these fans are dicks. We then get some more wackiness from Austin as Billy Gunn proceeds to flex his muscles to taunt him, so Austin then lifts his arms as though he was about to do the same, but instead he just flips off Mr. Ass. Stone Cold is in rare form tonight. With Austin getting the better of Billy, Mr. Ass actually ducked out of the ring and did that classic move where he began walking up the ramp as though he was quitting on the match. When Austin followed him, Road Dog jumped Stone Cold from behind, allowing Billy to take control. The Outlaws are acting a bit heelish tonight, it seems. However, Austin did manage to make the tag to The Undertaker shortly thereafter. 
Interestingly, Taker actually played the face in peril for the majority of the match as the Outlaws worked over his leg to prevent him from tagging Stone Cold back in. Eventually, though, Taker did make the hot tag, and Austin proceeded to pretty easily clean house on both Outlaws, tossing Billy out of the ring, then hitting Road Dog with a stunner, and that was enough to score the three count. Your winners, and still WWF Tag Team Champions, Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker. After the match, Austin ducked out of the ring and did his customary celebration of drinking several Steve Weisers. However, in an interesting moment, Austin tossed one of his beers to The Undertaker, and Taker then proceeded to chug it, getting a nice-sized pop from the crowd. Jim Ross played it up as though that sharing of alcohol may have been Austin's way of apologizing to Taker for clobbering him with a chair last week, so that's a nice gesture. Unfortunately, as Austin is toasting The Undertaker, Kane and Mankind jump him from behind, with Kane accidentally slipping and falling to the ground when he does so. With Kane beating on Austin, The Undertaker pairs off with Mankind, and they start fighting with each other, and that is how we go off the air. Ah, but wait a minute, if you're watching this episode on the WWE Network, we actually get a feature called Extra Attitude, which shows what happened after the show ended. We pick up the action a little while later as Austin and Kane are now fighting in the ring, Undertaker is standing at the top of the ramp, and Mankind has presumably already headed backstage. Austin hits Kane with a stunner, his music plays, and then he stares down the Undertaker while shaking his head back and forth. So perhaps we can assume that Austin's beer toast was not an apology after all. I guess we'll find out in the coming weeks. Lots more to cover here, but for now, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap Last week, Raw scored an easy ratings victory over Nitro by the score of 4.99 to 4.37. You might think that Raw would win by even more this week due to the fact that they were one night removed from a pay-per-view, but actually, Nitro managed to close the gap. Raw scored a 4.84 this week, while Nitro came ever so close with a 4.72. A valiant effort, but still a loss for WCW. That makes three straight ratings victories for Raw since the monumental Georgia Dome episode of Nitro, so the WWF is clearly back in control. And here's what you could have been watching over on Nitro on this evening. Hacksaw Jim Duggan defeated The Barbarian. Scott Norton defeated Jim Neidhart. Chris Jericho defeated Dean Malenko by disqualification to retain his Cruiserweight Championship. Kurt Hennig defeated Steve Mongo McMichael. Conan defeated Eddie Guerrero. Sting defeated Scott Hall via countout. Goldberg defeated Brian Adams to retain his World Heavyweight Championship. And, in your main event, Diamond Dallas Page defeated Hulk Hogan via disqualification. However, there were three other noteworthy segments on Nitro which the show was built around. The first segment that they hyped up was the fact that Goldberg, for the very first time, was going to speak. Yes, that's right, up to this point, he had never actually cut a promo, or so they tell us anyway. So they hyped up this Goldberg interview for the first two hours of Nitro, and with that being said, let's take it to Mean Gene Okerlund. If we can have your attention, ladies and gentlemen. 
Ladies and gentlemen, this has got to be the most highly anticipated interview I personally have ever conducted. This man usually does not do his talking behind a microphone. He does it here in the ring. However, tonight, in light of everything that has happened in recent weeks, I want to bring out a man who certainly has got a number of things on his mind, and tonight he can physically articulate to this vast audience here in San Antonio and to fans across America. You know, I saw your locker room back there, Goldberg, early on. The authorities were in there. I don't know what was going through somebody's mind. You know, I don't think anything was going through their mind. I don't think they were even thinking about it. You know, I've been here, and I've been observing what Hollywood Hogan and his cronies are trying to do in the WCW. From the bottom to the top. And what they did to me tonight crosses that line. And what they did became personal to me. And let me tell you something. Everybody that's been put in front of me, I've destroyed. 120 and 0. They ain't gonna stop. And tonight, I make an example out of Brian Adams. Because Brian Adams, you're next! Eh, probably not worth the two-hour wait. He gets better, though. The second segment that they hyped on this episode of Nitro to pop a higher rating was the fact that they were going to reshow, in its entirety, the full Bash at the Beach main event from two weeks prior. That's right, Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman versus Diamond Dallas Page and Carl Malone for 22 minutes. And they just gave it away on free TV. Sorry about that, all 600,000 of you who actually paid for it. You could have had it for free if you just waited. The match is absolutely terrible, but I suppose they thought that people would want to tune in just to see Rodman and Malone wrestle each other. In that regard, I suppose it actually was somewhat successful since Nitro's rating did increase quite a bit this week. And the final segment they built the show around was, for the second week in a row, Eric Bischoff hosted his own talk show, which parodied The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Last week, Bischoff did a five-minute monologue, and the crowd was absolutely shitting all over it. So obviously this week, Bischoff must have learned his lesson and not gone nearly as long, right? Not quite. How about 17 minutes of a Tonight Show parody, ladies and gentlemen? 17 minutes dedicated to mocking Jay Leno on a wrestling show. In fairness, it's actually a bit shorter on the WWE Network because they have to edit out some clips from the actual Tonight Show, but my god, that is a lot of wasted time. But then again, with jokes like these, I suppose you can't edit them out because you would be denying the people too much hilarity. I mean, Jay Leno, did you hear him the other night? I mean, he claims to be a biker. Jay Leno is no biker. Hollywood Hogan is indeed a real biker. I mean, if Jay Leno's a biker, Urkel is NWO black and white. <laughs> As if that monologue wasn't bad enough, Bischoff then actually imitated Leno's segment called Headlines, where he reads wacky headlines from newspapers across the country. I repeat, this actually happened on a wrestling show. 
The talk show then concluded with Bischoff interviewing Hulk Hogan for a while, and please, I challenge you, go ahead and attempt to watch this whole segment. If you can make it through the entire thing, you have my undying respect. Good luck to you. And on that note, let's take it to the Raw Synopsis. Once again, this episode of Raw gets an easy thumbs up from me. In my opinion, it's amazing how well these Attitude Era Raws have aged because content that was terrible at the time is now much more watchable from a what-the-hell-were-they-thinking perspective. Specifically, I'm thinking of Hawk being drunk and Yamaguchi-san threatening to chop off Val Venus's dick. At the time, most fans were probably hanging their heads in shame, but in retrospect, I'll be damned if I wasn't riveted to see just how far they were going to go with Hawk stumbling around the ring. It may be horrendous, but it is watchable. With that being said, there was also some really fun stuff, particularly the two title matches, an excellent evil Mr. McMahon promo, and of course, Bart Gunn ending the career of Dr. Death Steve Williams. If you get a chance, I would definitely recommend that you give this episode a look. Coming up on the next episode of Raw, can Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker continue to coexist? Will DX's lengthy losing streak result in the group breaking up? And will Val Venus get his Johnson cut off? Stay tuned to episode 33 to find out. However, before we get there, don't forget that our next episode will be a special bonus show covering the very first episode of Sunday Night Heat. You definitely won't want to miss that. And on that note, I think we can wrap this baby up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes like our new friend Parmeroid did because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will leave you now with a clip of a shoot interview with Road Warrior Animal where he discusses his thoughts on the drunk hawk angle. Enjoy that, and I will catch you next time for a special bonus Sunday Night Heat episode. When the WWE kind of exploited those elements of Hulk's personality for the storyline, how did you guys feel about that? How did Hulk feel about that? What was your overall feeling about that use uh, of the angle and the they, replacement with draws as well? They originally wanted me to do that, and I, I refused to do it. Um, I thought it was low. I thought it was disrespectful for what we did for wrestling, and I thought it was out of bad taste. But that's the thing with WWE. They think they can do anything they want, and everybody's going to like it. And I thought it was disrespectful. Why would you even take or damage the top tag team, who is your Hulk Hogan of tag teams at the time, and say he's got a drunken drug problem when it's too close to home? I'm not a big believer in uh, touching on things that are too close to home. There's some things you got to have respect for and leave them aside. And with all the guys and girls that are wrestling, there's a big camaraderie and a big respect factor. It's the office that makes these decisions, which causes that friction, man. And the guys sometimes, and you'll see sometimes the guys go after the boss. I mean, we like to go after him a few times ourselves. But, you know, it, it was bad taste, man, real bad taste. <laughs>